Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Ganal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. I hope you are all doing well. Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2024. Feels like nothing much has changed. New Year, everything. But very excited of what is to come this year. And there's quite a few exciting developments on my side. And I can't wait to start sharing more about them. But today we are sharing this episode with an amazing guest. He's an environmental impact assessment or EIA expert with over 35 years of experience and he has excelled in academia, research and consultancy as well as being an editor of leading EIA journals and a dedicated environmental consultant who has significantly shaped the field. Now, during today's episode, we actually talk about the origins of EIA. We also highlighted some of EIA's pivotal roles in mitigating environmental impacts, as well as explored some of the challenges like defining what is a significant impact that actually triggers an EIA and a comprehensive like EIA process, like what is the process of EIA and where do we get in? We also looked at the role of public engagement when it comes to EIAs and also offsetting impacts, like what is it? Why is it important? And we also looked at the necessity of collaboration between different sectors, whether it is government, industry, the public, and why it is so crucial. So crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome our guest today, Angus Morrison Saunders. Hi, Mariska. Nice to be with you again. (laughs) Awesome. It's great talking about EIA. I know that is something that you are very passionate about and something that I learned from you firsthand in uni as well. So it's great being able to share your amazing knowledge with our crazy birds today. You're welcome. And shouldn't we explain that EIA stands for Environmental Impact Assessment? Yes, definitely, definitely. So that is one of the first questions that I'm going to get to. But before we dig into EIA, I think it is so important to actually dig into you and how did your sustainable journey start? What got you here? Uh, it's a long journey. Some years ago, I, I you know how you keep a box of all this stuff from childhood and whatever, you know, your little box of treasures or mementos or whatever. I found an old diary I had from when I was about year eight at high school and I'd kind of obsessively collected articles about the nuclear winter. In those days, the the fear was that we were going to have nuclear war and there'd be so much dust thrown up into the atmosphere that the planet would freeze, which is quite ironic, isn't it? Now we talk about global warming. (laughs) But I obviously put that together for some sort of school assignment. And I suppose 
ever since I've steered myself into environmental science. So when I went to university, I studied an environmental science degree and that ended up being very focused on environmental impact assessment because it was a unit that I studied right towards the end of my undergraduate degree. And then I did my honours study in that area because I loved it so much and then my PhD. And then lo and behold, (laughs) I've been teaching this area for about 30, 35 years. But another part of my background is that my family emigrated to Australia when I was a, a very young child. And my parents were always interested in learning about this country and they love the outdoors, the big spaces. So they took us camping and things like that a lot. So being outdoors, being in the environment was something I was instilled with me right from very, very formative years. So I guess that's also a personal influence on my interest in protecting and managing our our beautiful environments. I love that. And which country did they immigrate from? From England, yes. Oh, okay. oh I tell you, I, I could do the accent for you if you prefer. <laughs> I don't have an outrageous South African accent like you. We can't all have that. Oh, I know. That's only a few lucky of us, you know. <laughs> it's a it lovely sticks. accent. <laughs> it, it, celebrate it. It's lovely. <laughs> so, Angus, we touched a little on EIA in you know, environmental impact assessment and Goodness, depending on where in the world you are, it's actually like the terminology can be different. So it could be impact assessment. It could be a project appraisal, like, you know, EIA's got all of this different terminologies. But in like kind of a nutshell, what is EIA? Well, whatever you call it, it's all about thinking ahead and it's about trying to avoid problems before they occur, specifically for big human development projects, you know, big construction projects, things like that, mining, building new highways, building new urban areas, whatever human endeavour, thinking about the consequences on the environment and trying to avoid the problems and minimise the problems by giving it a bit of planning and and careful consideration. So you literally assess the likely impacts before you cause them and you try and prevent them. And I believe there's a quote in your book, which we'll get to later, but it's basically to think before you act. (laughs) I think that's what it simply means, yes. Think before you act. And I mean, it's it's not something that is new. Obviously, you've been doing this field for over 35 years. But back in 1969, it was the first time that, you know, the EIA process was actually brought into the National Environmental Policy Act in the US. So, you know, it's not something that is new. It It might be something that, you know, is new to us to start hearing more about because now when you do have developments, it's like, oh, you need an EIA. So it's becoming more like almost policy that you need to have this, whereas previously, I don't think it was as much like ingrained in the policy type of thing. Is that correct? That is correct. So before we had environmental impact assessment, and you're exactly right, 1969 was the sort of magic year, we did have town planning, which was about trying to manage our cities and our urban areas and and human forms and and how that's going on. And we had the field of geography. So, you know, we now talk about environmental science, but for a couple of hundred years, we had the field of geography as its own thing, which is very much about how people live on this planet. But the, perhaps what makes environmental impact assessment different is that it's, I always see it as, as an environmental advocacy. In other words, it's, we call it in, in Australia, we call it environmental impact assessment, 
because we're giving the environment a voice. We are being advocates for protecting the environment. So less, I mean, yes, it's about sustainable development. We want human activity to be, be sustainable, but we're sort of raising the profile of the environment there to say, hey, the environment matters. Let's not forget it. And in the 1960s, we had more and more technologies and big projects and big engineering feats, you know, really large hydroelectric dams and things like that. That's what triggered the concern. We're saying we're, humans are getting too big for their boots. You know, in the 60s, we're going off to the moon. You know, we're getting really our abilities as uh, to use technologies to, to transform the way we live in the world was getting more and more dramatic. So it was about, hey, let's stop, give the environment some consideration before we go ahead. Basically, it is about mitigating the impacts. So that kind of shines a light on the importance of it, but also like, why would you say to our crazy birds, why do we conduct this? Like, yes, we give the environment a voice, but why else? Because your birds are crazy. It's in the name. The clue is in the name. We are crazy birds because we don't think explicitly about what we're going to do before we do it. We tend to blunder in. Humans are very good at making very rapid decisions and doing things on the spur of the moment. But when there's 8 billion of us running amok, it does cause problems. And we do need some checks and balances in, well, I think before you act, we just need to calm down. Let's think this through. Are we doing this in the best possible way or could we do it a bit better from our initial gut reaction of let's do this? <laughs> well, maybe just slow down and, and just think it through. That's all we're doing really. I love that. And that's so important because, you know, sometimes it is like the best option is also to not do anything, to not continue with that project because you might have a lot of bird species that might go extinct if you actually just remove one tree extra, you know. So in a way, it's also not just like seeing how you could do it better, but also to see, you know, is it actually worth doing it? Yes or no <laughs> as well. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes the solution can be counterintuitive. If, you know, if you have a traffic, you have a situation in your city life where the roads are really busy and congested, you immediately think, oh, we should build another road, a new road. But we actually know from history that the more roads you build, the more people drive their cars. And sometimes doing nothing or doing something that seems different to what you'd intuitively think you should do, let's build a new road. Instead of doing that, you say, well, maybe we should upgrade public transport or we should make roads narrower and actually constrain them with chicanes and things. And then all of a sudden people go, oh, electric scooter would, so it would be a much better way to travel or public transport or something. So sometimes doing nothing can, can actually change our behaviours in a really good way to not even need that idea we had. Oh, no, that's so true. And I mean, Angus, you've been involved in EIA for over 35 years. Like, how has the landscape actually changed since you started? And what has been some of the most significant changes or advancements that you've witnessed in the field of EIA? I don't think the fundamental theories and ideas have really changed or the need. I don't think the need has changed, the need to, to do this. And so some of the thinking that was put together back in the 1970s, the 1980s about how we should do this in a systematic way and the things we should think about, a lot of those fundamental things haven't changed. But what we are more aware of and, and where we have evolved is, is we would talk more about sustainability assessment now 
And when you do sustainability assessment, I'm sure your crazy birds are aware of the 17 sustainable development goals. How do you juggle 17 balls? You know, how do you make all 17 of these things align and happen? And so, you know, you can understand this complexity there in balancing that. And sometimes you can get these tensions where doing one thing seems to come at the expense of another. And so how do you manage those trade-offs and, and that kind of situation? So I think some of the evolution has been more about the expectation that sustainable development makes us think a bit more broadly, but at the same time, it requires us some clever skills in how we make decisions. Ultimately, we need to make decisions. You, know, you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to survive without mining. Well, really, everything we have, every resort, every the computer I'm talking to you on is, is a composite of so many different mining projects from around the world. And to say that we don't need mining is very sort of naive. It's not really re real to the where we are. So it's, it's when you say, well, okay, we need to mine, but then what should we mine? How should we mine? And how should we do it in the best possible way? And we're back to the complexity of dealing with things like the 17 sustainable development goals and, and how do you actually manage all that. That's amazing. One of the first things when you look at EIA is when do you need to do an EIA? When is that kind of triggered as you need an EIA now? And one of the words that is always used is when there will be a significant adverse effect on the environment. But what is that? What is classified as significant? Because what I find is significant might not be the same thing than the CEO of a big corporate mining company. <laughs> so what is and significant? So this is one of the, the really core issues in environmental impact assessment, the, the significance test. And who gets to decide? Who gets to decide that what it is? In a democracy such as I'm from Australia, and we have an expectation that all decision-making is transparent and open and publicly disclosed. Now, you can't say that for every country on this planet or every form of governance. Um, some governments operate in different ways. But in a democracy, there's a sense that the demos, the people, have a say. And that means that a good environmental impact assessment process will allow your values and views to come forward alongside those of the, of the mining executive that you, in the example you just mentioned. And then someone needs to say, well, what matters here? So when we look at significance, we start looking at human values. How do we value different parts of the environment? But we also look at the sensitivity of the environment itself in relation to the activity and the possibility that the activity might be done a different way or in a different place to avoid impacts if, if the environment's considered to be very sensitive. So, for example, we know there's many different ways of generating electricity. We don't have to burn coal or burn fossil fuels. We can use wind power, we can use water power, solar power, that sort of thinking. There might be different ways of achieving our objective of more power, more electricity, but we, we might be able to play with different things like that. So significance is very much this combination of what is the kind of development we've got, what is the sensitivity of the environment, or what, if you like, what values do we place on that environment? And that's where sensitivity rating comes from, if you like. Yeah, because when you also look at some of the Environmental Protection Acts and things, especially the one here in Australia, protecting the environment would not be in the first or the second actual items that's listed that the Act stands for. So it's very interesting also when you when you look further into that as well. So 
So I think it all comes through into the different languages as well. Like what does the country actually value as well as significant? And to protect the environment, I would have said would be number one on or should be number one on that list. But unfortunately, it's not. Well, it depends what you mean by environment. So everybody would say we need fresh air, right, to breathe and we don't want to have polluted air. But when it comes to something like So we know that plants are really essential for moderating our climate. We know on a hot day, you go stand under a shady tree. We know that being uh, around plants and animals, it feels nice and and we get value from that. But it doesn't mean to say they have to be Australian flora or fauna. Some people don't care if they're introduced species that do that, whereas ecologists would say, hey, 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 the biodiversity in, in Australia is unique and very special and we should protect that. So... When we look at the values, we have to look at a variety of things. Sometimes it's scientific, which may be unknown to many people, and sometimes it's just simply utility and the value that individuals benefit or perceive from their environment around them. That's why environmental impact assessment becomes this whole field, because how do you put all these things together and make sense of it with multiple stakeholders and people involved? It's not necessarily so straightforward or easy as it might first sound when I say, oh, think before you act. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that brings the whole process as well, like about EIA, like where does it start and like where does it end? Okay. So we don't do environmental impact assessment as a formal legal process for everything. If you're deciding to jump in your car and and drive off to the local shops, we don't do an environmental impact assessment of that. So we do have to already have a kind of significance test on the type of development that we will actually assess. So it tends to be larger things, you know, like new mining proposals or, or a new highway, a new extension to an urban area, many things it might be. But it tends to be larger things, so larger activities Of course, it requires that test on the sensitivity of the environment and the values we place on it. Sometimes small things can be very devastating for a local place, and that might be considered to be significant. So first of all, we test the type of development. And generally speaking, the proponents, as we call it, the developer, is aware of their activities. Mining companies know, for example, that they're most likely going to need an environmental impact assessment. So Generally speaking, there's already an awareness within the development community of of what's likely, and they will actually notify the environmental authorities up front and say, look, we really, we found a new ore body. We'd really like to uh, explore this and develop it. We think we probably need an EIA. Here's what we're thinking. What do you reckon? And away we go. Oh, wow. And it's also not just like the initial concept phase do they have to then kind of prove what they are doing along the way as well? So, I mean, it's all great and well to hand in this EIA and say, oh, we are going to do all of this, but what if they don't actually have a baseline measurement beforehand and that's not done? So how could you actually prove that they've harmed the place if there was nothing of that? Okay, so now we're in the nuts and bolts of doing environmental impact assessment. So to assess the impacts or the likely impacts of a development, we need to know something about the environment, hence baseline monitoring, as we call it, and understanding the baseline. What is the environment now? And then what would happen if we put this development into that environment? We start making predictions about what that would be. 
And we expect the proponent or the developer to make those predictions as well as commit to the mitigations and the management to, to avoid really bad problems and, and address any bad adverse impacts that might be predicted to occur if they proceed. Some of those mitigation measures, management measures, will be made by the government regulators into conditions of approval. They say, okay, we'll let you go ahead with this mine on the understanding that you will indeed mon continue monitoring this part of the environment and also that you will do this management activity. It might be plant trees, it might be restore the land that's been disturbed, it might be do something with water, do something with the air, whatever it might be, and you will actually be responsible for doing those things. And that means we do need a system of checking on the quality. So many projects run for decades. Sometimes you know, there are areas of Western Australia that have been mined continuously for 100 years. So, you know, we have to think the long term um, about the things we need to do incrementally and, and the progress we need to make. And some developments we don't ever plan to take away. When you dam a river for a water supply, you're kind of saying it's forever. When you build a new road, they often seem to be forever. I know forever is a long time. But if you go to parts of Europe, you can go on places and it says on the map, Roman road. You know, these are roads that, are be that were established by the Romans more than 2,000 years ago. Guess what? There's still a road. So a lot of things sort of stay permanent in that, in that sense. Other things can be transient. A power station, like a um, coal-fired power station, only has a lifespan of about 30 years. Many other things, an industrial plant that manufactures certain things might only have a lifespan of, of 10, 15, 20 years. And so some developments, we need to plan the entire life cycle to take that factory away or take that facility away, clean up the site and then work out what it'll next be used for. Oh, wow. So like the whole decommissioning process as well. So that's all in there. And, you know, you kind of need to tick those boxes. You can't just put in your EIA and call it a day. But there's one thing in particular that always makes my hair rise, and that is offsetting. <laughs> I feel sometimes it's a fancy word for greenwashing, because I find that it's, it's a very convenient way for a lot of developments to counterbalance impacts of their project. And for me, I've always kind of thought about it that, you know, how can you destroy like maybe a beautiful rainforest somewhere and offsetting it by planting trees, you know, halfway around the world? How's that justifiable? So can you maybe shed some light on, on this? So let's go back. I was talking before about mitigation and management. And normally we do that at the site where the impact is. So if you imagine a mine site, to dig the um, minerals out of the ground, you have to dig the hole, right? You have to take the forest away or the woodland. If it's a rainforest, you have to take the rainforest away. It, it may be impossible to keep that patch of rainforest and mine. And if you've decided yes, we really want this mine, it's really important to have this lithium to make our electric cars, batteries and so on or whatever, we really need this mine. So we are going to lose this piece of rainforest. So then an offset is says, well, can we restore that equivalent rainforest somewhere nearby as close as possible? But it could be that there's a piece of degraded rainforest nearby where, where there was some agricultural activity in the past the soils are still intact. Some of the trees might still be there, but a lot of the um, 
plants might be disturbed and, and are missing or there might be weeds. So the idea is that can we actually invest money and time in restoring that piece of habitat to become a good quality piece of rainforest? It will take time. But that's the theory, right? <laughs> that's the theory. In the practice, eh, it's hard because in reality, to actually try and restore a rainforest or any habitat is really, really hard. It's preferable not to lose habitat in the first instance. But we're just trying to figure that out because if the true cost of the restoration was understood at the beginning and if the developer knew that they had to go uh, provide the full true cost and that full true cost was put into the spreadsheet given to the financiers of this project of the profits and costs uh, of this balance sheet of this project you would have many more projects where they go ah, ain't going to be financially viable instead what we do is go oh we'll find a solution it's okay trust me and we go ahead a bit recklessly this is the reckless thing right humans tend to be a bit reckless they don't think before they act necessarily or they only partially think. They don't nut it all out. And so we recklessly go ahead and then we go, oh, we've got a problem. And the offsets now look like greenwashing. Exactly, because that's the thing I find, you know, often we've got people flying all over the world and be like, oh, I'll just offset my carbon footprint here as well. And it kind of feels the same when it comes to some of these projects. It's like, you know, I feel it is. It's a very like big greenwash opportunity. And there might be companies that do go out of their way to definitely try to do the best. And I mean, it is like you said, you know, you can't really recreate a rainforest. It, it's not happening overnight. Although in Dubai, they build a rainforest indoors. <laughs> but, yeah, but you That know. doesn't really count. <laughs> it's not, I mean, part of protecting the environment is that we normally have in mind a kind of wild environment, not one that's indoors, <laughs> not in a museum, <laughs> but one that's actually self-sustaining. That's exactly. what we, we, we prefer to have. Yeah. And how crucial is the public's involvement in EIA process? And how has it actually transformed over time? Well, like I said earlier, in a democracy, there's an expectation that the, the public have a right to know. But there's also a, the principle that if the public are going to be affected by a decision, they have a right to be involved in that decision. That's why if you're arrested for a suspicion of a crime, you have you are presumed to be innocent and you're given a court trial before you're found. And that's your chance to speak up for yourself. That, that principle in criminal law is actually underpins our democracies. It actually also extends to the idea that, well, if you live in an area and someone comes along and says, well, I want to log this forest or mine these minerals or build a highway or whatever it might be, and there's going to be some impact on you and your land and your quality of life, then you have the right to be involved in the making of that decision. There is a um, a principle that the public will be given the opportunity to be involved, not forced to be involved. You're not you're not <laughs> caught up saying, you will give us information. It's just a case of an invitation. Um, if you have concerns about this or you wish to be involved here, it's your right to be to be involved. It has strengths and weaknesses. Well, I mean, they're all mostly strengths, but the issue is that if you have a very complex society, the and many voices, many people who care, it is going to be quite slow to try and process all that input and, and figure it out. So if you're trying to move really fast and have fast development, it's going to be tricky, right? 
But on the other hand, the public are so wise, or your crazy birds are wise. They know so much. There's the crazy bird who knows all about butterflies and the crazy bird who knows all about penguins and the crazy bird who knows all about soil and or how to grow uh, crops or something. And so their expertise can come in and, and inform the decision-making process if this, the project's going to impact on butterflies or penguins or whatever it's going to be. That's really kind of helpful. And, you know, so each of our crazy birds out there actually can make a difference. So if there is an area of expertise, I know my husband's always looking at anything transport related and he's like, I will have a look at this to see if this is the best route. <laughs> you know, if not, I'm going to like do something with uh, some of the EIA options, just like lodge some click on the website or how do they do that? We've discussed this, but <laughs> yeah, just for our crazy birds while we're, while we're here, like how, how do they get involved in the EIA process? If you're directly affected by a development, you should be contacted directly by the proponent or the developer or their representatives. Literally, someone might knock on your door or put a leaflet in your mailbox or, or contact you through however you're registered to be contacted. You know, everyone lives in an electorate and there's electoral roles and postal things. Someone might send you a piece of information that way. But there could also be adverts in local papers and media outlets. There might be a notice board in your shopping centre. So in your local shopping centre, there might be an information board telling you about it. There's obviously governments always post stuff on the internet. I mean, I realise that most crazy birds aren't sitting there scrolling through the <laughs> Department of Environment website every week. So sometimes, you know, if you are directly affected, you should be directly contacted. If you're indirectly affected, it's kind of up to you to be abreast of what's going on mm. in your region or neighbourhood. And of course, if, you're a, if you have a special interest, if you're a member of the Wildflower Association or, or you're an apiarist, uh, you know, you're into bees or or whatever, you might be from a canoeing club and you're interested in wild rivers and white water, you'll probably be aware of things that, that might affect your recreation or your professional or whatever interest. So you'll, you might be involved that way. But having become aware of it, there'll be an invitation of some kind to make comments, you know, to read what the proponent and developer says about the, the likely impacts and to, to identify whether that you think you've, they've got it right. Maybe you think they haven't predicted it correctly or they haven't put, put up good mitigation measures. Maybe you think they're offsetting proposals are greenwashing and you call them out. You have that right to put in some sort of submission and be heard. In some parts of the world, they have oral meetings where you can make an oral, not an oral defence, an oral submission. So you can actually appear before a panel and there'll be government and environmental representatives there and you actually can speak. So rather than a written submission, you can actually speak. We don't tend to do that in Australia, but in, in, in New Zealand, Canada, some other parts of the world, that is the norm. And that has the advantage, of course, because people are much more comfortable talking. And if you speak English as a second language, you could have an interpreter translate it for you directly. Whereas if you had to write it in English, written English, and you have English as a second language, you may not be comfortable doing that. So, so we have to also think about the processes so th of how we actually involve the public because you can do it well and you can do it poorly. Exactly. And one of the things that I've actually noticed is going, I think it is, I'm not sure if it's the state library or the council library, but they also had printed out currently all the EIAs that's open for comment as well. So you can actually 
swing by the library and check out what EIAs are there. And, you know, if, you, if you're passionate about one in particular. That should happen, especially for local things. So sometimes there'll be a project that's so significant. So, for example, if we were to start in Australia, we've got this talk about nuclear submarines and so on. And our nuclear is a really sensitive issue, right? So something involving nuclear is probably going to be of national interest. And so that kind of project might appear in libraries all around the all around the country. Whereas something that's just local, a local industry setting up might just be in your local shire or city regional library and not not right across the whole state or country. And what are some of the obstacles? I mean, you've talked about the language barrier sometimes with EIA, but what other obstacles are there as well for EIAs? Well, we always have problems with what we know and what we don't know. There's always a lot of uncertainty. And when we do start to know something, often it's scientists who are doing that research. And so the scientists start to know about things, but it's not common knowledge. Climate change is a classic. Scientists knew about climate change, you know, 50 years ago, but it wasn't sort of popular or talked about until the last couple of decades. So you get that issue where something is, a, is an area of specialist interest, if you like, and, and, and not common knowledge. And it takes a while for things to disseminate through the community. But even then, people may not fully understand. So sometimes it's quite hard to understand all of the intricacies of the impacts on environment. I mean, for example... We all know there's water beneath our feet here, groundwater of some kind, and, and in the part of Australia I come from, groundwater has long been a, um, an important water supply for our cities, but we don't really understand, we kind of, it's just abstract, right? We don't see groundwater, it's below us. And then it turns out there's little animals that live in the groundwater, little microscopic creatures, like, wow, this is doing my head in now, because not only can I not see the groundwater, but then I've got to imagine these microscopic creatures living in there, in the soil, in, in, in this water, in the soil. It's, it's kind of, it's really hard to get your head around all of that, that stuff sometimes. So that's one of the issues, the uncertainty about knowing and then the communication of that with the wider public so that they can understand and, and make sense of it. And how essential is the collaboration between these different sectors? Like, you know, we've talked about the public, but from the government, industry, academia, again, the public, how important is that to actually ensure that there is an effective EIA? Well, any sort of information sharing is always very powerful. And that's that's why, you know, using your example from before, your local shire or city might use the public library as a way to put material on display. That idea in a democracy that we share information, we share knowledge, that's so powerful. So if, if the different people involved in an individual development project can talk to each other and learn from each other, that's fantastic. There is a tension though, of course, because if you're a mining company and you're chasing a deposit of lithium to make lithium batteries, well, guess what? <laughs> there are three or four other co companies doing likewise. And so there's a natural tendency in business not to, to be a little bit private mm. and not to sh fully share information about what you're doing because it can give your competitors an advantage. So that's one of the practical issues we need to overcome. And it comes down to things like trust and relationship and also a desire if people are genuinely wanting to have sustainable development and genuinely want to protect the environment that value will transcend a lot of that commercial, ooh, I can make lots of money <laughs> if I am keep it quiet and keep it secret. 
but you can tell you can tell immediately from that crazy birds that I'm an idealist, I'm an academic, <laughs> and I'm a passionate environmentalist, and I live in hope. <laughs> Talking about hope in the future, like what future trends or development do you foresee in the field of EIA? considering, you know, environmental challenges like climate change and also with like rapid urbanisation? Yeah, well, the biggest challenge is us, right? Um, We're still growing exponentially, the human population, I mean. We still haven't hit the peak human population and we also haven't hit equity amongst our population. So, we live an, ex- an incredibly extravagant life here in Australia and in, in most Western nations. The quality of life is phenomenal, which is why other people want to come to our countries. <laughs> you know, if you're a refugee, you want to go to a country that's better than your country where there is some sort of strife. You don't go to a country that's worse, not unless you have absolutely no other choice, I suspect. So my point is that everyone wants to live well, and live like us, and that should be a right, of course. But there's a lot of us and we're still growing. So I think that's the number one tension. How do we deal with that? How do we find ways to genuinely transcend our technologies and our behaviours so we can have a good quality of life, but we really work at at sorting out the um, minimising those impacts? It's going to be quite a lot of changes necessary to, to do that in the sort of speed we need to to keep the blue planet spinning merrily and happily and sustainably. Exactly. So we definitely need more people to become involved and do our bit of EIA as well. And Angus, is there any associations or anything that our crazy birds could actually join if that is something that they are keen on? There are tons. (laughs) There are tons and tons. So I mentioned before you might have a special interest. You might be the the butterfly person, the the canoeing person or whatever. So already if you have a special interest, well, find the association and the the people that are are interested in what you're doing. They're out there. There are everyone. There's people who are fascinated by mushrooms. There's people who are fascinated by wildlife photography. There's there's absolutely everything. So there's a whole lot of community organisations that just simply meet together because they're interested in, a, in something. And, and that is fabulous because those people can become representatives for that issue and speak up. And if you speak up as a collective voice, then you're so much further ahead. Then the next level up is uh, particular environmental groups. There's, you know, there's the con- conservation groups. and Everyone's heard of Greenpeace and organisations like the, the World Wildlife Fund or the Wilderness Society in, in Australia, organisations like that. So those are organisations that are specifically advocating for environmental protection and conservation. Uh, so you might want to join one of those. And then next level up is sort of professional associations. If you're a professional, if you're a... Um, an environmental professional, a geographer or a, a ecologist or a hydrologist or anything that ends in IST, <laughs> um, you might want to join one of the Environment Institutes. So, that, for example, there's a, a one across Australia and New Zealand, the Environmental Institute of Australia and New Zealand, for example. So that's for professionals who, who work in the, in the field and they then support each other. They do education and they do training courses and things like that. And then beyond that, you might just simply work in the field if you're working as a consultant or working for government. So it's kind of like everything from the, the just the simple interest group in your community through to national and international organisations like the NGOs, Greenpeace, through to professional bodies that are there to get together and educate each other and so on. 
Oh, that's amazing. And if our crazy birds want to learn more about EIA, I would definitely recommend for them to actually read your book. So you are the author of Advanced Introduction to Environmental Impact Assessment. And can you share a little bit about this book? Why? Okay, well, I just realized that the second edition's just come out. Oh, wow. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Published this year, 2023. I should have a copy with me, but I don't seem to have one in my hand right now. It's a thin book. So environmental impact assessment is is a big area, but this is a very thin book. Uh, I'll show you by comparison. Here is a a recent handbook on environmental impact assessment published by a Canadian, and that's a lot thicker. Oh, wow. That's like double. (laughs) So my book book is deliberately trying to be simple, um, tell you everything you – like the real fundamentals you need to know, but to do it as simply as possible and – trying to make it accessible, if you like. So that's that's what was my goal. It's not about any particular country or place. It's, it's about the thinking behind environmental impact assessment. I use examples from around the world and along the way, but it's, it's to make the point that everybody may have an interest in this and perhaps should have an interest in this <laughs> at some level. And hopefully anyone who's interested will be able to, to read the book and understand it quite accessibly. You know, oh, awesome. I'm trying to make it simple. And I'm definitely going to link that book in our show notes as well. So Crazy Birds, don't worry about writing down the name wherever you are now. Uh, Just go to the link and it will be there for you. Angus, what has been one of your most important decisions that you have made around Mama Earth? Whoa. Okay. (laughs) It's controversial. It's possibly controversial. I chose not to have kids. That's pretty big for most people. Yeah, well, we're in the same boat. We only have a fur baby. That's probably a lot like more expensive than kids coming to think about that now. But yeah, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, when you, when you have that conversation with people, a lot of the times people don't understand that is actually a choice that you can make to make sure that we don't grow to 10 billion in the next couple of years. But, you know, it's it's a choice. And yeah, so that's that's an interesting one. I, I really like that one as well. And I've always like said to my husband as well, you know, if we ever do come to a point where we feel like, oh, you know, we we should have had kids, then there's so, so many children out there that actually do need a home versus then just add adding to to humanity. So yeah, so that's that's interesting. We're on the same field yeah. on that one. I've made other lifestyle choices as well. Um, you know, and they're usually win-win in a good way. Um, so I've only ever owned half a car. <laughs> I've always I've always shared a car. Now most Australians, uh, most adult Australians, have their own car. That's the norm. If there's a, a family of four living together and they're all adults, there'll be four cars parked outside, and that would be just considered normal. Well, I've always thought that was a bit nuts. So um, I've only ever had, I've always shared a car with with my partner. And then I also do other things like cycle and walk as much as I I can. And I I often walk to the shops, for example. Takes longer, but it's also part of my fitness. And it's also how I interact with my neighbours. So I meet people in my community and I'm aware of the issues that are going on. So I think there's some win-wins in that regard if the circumstances work out for you. Yeah, I love that. It also kind of makes you decide where to live, that it is more accessible for you to like use public transport. And because we also, we don't own a car. I haven't owned a car since 2019. We'll probably own some car sometime in the future, but I feel like, you know, there's so many opportunities to rather rent for the day or the weekend instead of 
being burdened by this like payments every year that you need to pay regos and all sorts of things. Whereas, you know, you're paying for something if you're not using it, which I find pointless. So yeah, (laughs) that's cool. So crazy birds, like I would love to hear about any other crazy birds out there that does not own a car or only owns half a car. So let us know. That'd be great. Angus, we are now going to move into our final five. Are you ready? I am. Hand on buzzer. (laughs) First one is, what is one social media account or publication that you follow? Now, I don't really do social media. I have various alerts on, on academic publications. I'm an academic and I, and I love reading the science and stuff. So I, I read a lot of books and I look at, I keep up with various lists of publications. So I'm very geeky. I'm sorry, crazy birds, but I'm, I'm crazy in that regard. Um, that's me. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? <sighs> I would like it to be taken seriously, to tell you the truth, and not taken for granted. I love our environment. I, I spend a lot of my time in wild places. I, I go, like the Germans call it, forest bathing. And I find if I don't have time around trees and nature, I, I go a bit, I find myself going a bit manic and, and depressive and not a good person. I, I become more negative. So I would just like other people to have that realisation of, of how amazing this planet is and nature for looking after us and being part of, part of our journey. What advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? Go outside. If you're not the sort of person who normally spends a lot of time outside, go find a, an interesting place. You know, if it's hot, go find somewhere cool in the shade and just breathe a few times and look. Look and listen. Listen to the birds. Look at the plants and just slow down a little. I think we have crazy lives. You know, we we always on our on our smartphones. You know, you see people all the time. They get to a, a, a cafe and they sit down. The first thing they do is they flip out their their smartphone and have a look. No, I get it. I get it. We are social animals. It's highly addictive. We're, we're connected. It's fantastic that we can be connected. I'm not a luddite, <laughs> but it's wonderful to sit at a cafe and look around and smile at the person next to you and then just sort of be there, be present. Exactly. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? Sustainability fact? I usually ask a question and the question is, how should eight and a half billion people live? Oh, that's that's an interesting one. Probably not how we're living. Can't be. We don't have enough planets for how we live here in Australia. So, and it's a really difficult question. It's a confronting question. Yeah, I'm going to definitely use that one in the future. (laughs) And Angus, where can people find you? Well, (laughs) I have a very distinctive name, Angus Morrison Saunders. There's only one Morrison Saunders on the planet. So you can find (laughs) me very easily just by simply punching my name into a search engine and sending me a cheerful email and I'll probably respond. Do you notice I said email? I, that's, that's, I'm very old-fashioned and old-school, but that's a very reliable way to reach me. Oh, awesome. We'll definitely link that. Well, your social, I've, I've got your LinkedIn. We'll link your LinkedIn on yeah, there. Yeah, cool. And then, yeah, people can reach you on there as well. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing all your lovely EIA knowledge. And I definitely hope some of our crazy birds can take something away from here and just like kind of help to protect our planet even more. 
Thank you, Mariska. And thank you, crazy birds who've listened this far. I hope it's worth it. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guests for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them and I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes so if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them. Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday. So make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.